Y'all, once again this summer we are looking at the doctrine of the image of God and we're being helped greatly by uh, a book called Designed for Dignity by one of my Old Testament professors, Richard Pratt. Uh, Richard published this book years ago, back in the mid-90s if I'm not mistaken. And he's simply looking at this question about who are we, what are we, what is it that constitutes our essential nature. I tried to cast it a couple of weeks ago in terms of the story that we're believing about ourselves at any given time. And that the Bible is telling a story about us. And that the essence of the Christian faith is in many ways simply owning that story as our own and beginning to live as if that story uh, is true about us. What I want to um, look at tonight is Genesis chapter 3. Now, Genesis chapter 3 is kind of long, so I'm not going to read through it. I'll simply refer to it as we get uh, to our topic. But I want you to um, uh, try to recall uh, a favorite scene from one of my new uh, favorite movies, the movie uh, 300. Ladies, if you haven't figured it out yet, okay, this is, a, um, this is what happens when you let a bunch of boys get in a room and make a movie. Okay? Uh, it is all testosterone all the time, lots of blood, lots of fighting, you know, all the Spartans are kind of cool. Watch the edited version. It's much uh, better, less edgy. But there's a wonderful scene where the narrator is talking about the Spartans' great enemy, you know, the, the mighty Persian army that's invading Greece. And, of course, the, uh, the king of Persia at that time thought himself to be a god, King Xerxes, right? And at one point, the narrator gives this great... Uh, line about Xerxes, and it's, a, it's actually an adapted comic by Frank Miller. If you never saw uh, uh, Sin City, it's got that sort of comic book look to it, um, very sort of cool, edgy look the, for all those movies. Anyway, he says, uh, he, the narrator says at one point during the movie, the god king Xerxes has betrayed a fatal flaw, hubris, easy to taunt, easy to trick. The mad king throws the best he has at us. Xerxes has taken the bait. Um, you know, Xerxes sends his best soldiers in to try to attack uh, the Spartans, right? And he falls into a hideous trap. Um, and the reason why I wanted—I remembered that quote is because of the word that the narrator used, the word hubris. Okay, for just a second, dig back into some of those old Greek mythology files that you collected uh, in high school, right? Uh, and does anyone remember a working definition of the word hubris? What is hubris? Anybody remember anything like from this from literature? Rage is part. Pride part. Conceit, massive conceit. Yeah, it's almost like... Hubris is pride on steroids, okay? Pride mixed with rage. Pride mixed with um, folly. In other words, it's the kind of pride that's going to bring you down, all right? Um, and the reason why that word struck in my um, uh, uh, mind for this is because that's exactly what we see happening in Genesis chapter 3. Um, we really, in, in many ways, can sum up the teaching of the entire chapter by saying that it was about the creatures of God suddenly struggling through the issue of pride. Now, it's very confusing for us to talk about this because a lot of times as children, we were taught to have pride, weren't we? When, did, when were you told to have pride? Uh, um, I always think it's funny 
uh, going to my old high school, sorry to all the ECS graduates here, and seeing across the new gymnasium that they built down there, you know, Eagle Pride, right? Uh, <laughs> sorry, I don't know why that's funny. <clears throat> but, um, you know, we're told in some sense to take pride over things, right? But we're also told in the Bible that pride comes before a fall. What's the difference, right? Um, it turns out that there's a legitimate kind of pride, sort of a self-respect is kind of what that's talking about. But then there's a destructive pride, hubris, which actually can bring your, about your own demise as an individual. We all, as it turns out in Genesis chapter 3, as the story goes, Satan used both ploys in order to bring down the crown of God's creation created in his image. So the question that I want to ask tonight, and that I hope you'll begin thinking about, so we'll have a little time for question and answer at the end, is simply this. Y'all, what is wrong with us? You ever ask, ask yourself that question? I'm not sure you've ever really matured until you've asked yourself that question. What is wrong with me? Because oftentimes our behavior doesn't even make sense to us. Uh, and the Bible wants to offer a suggestion or at least an answer to the question, what it is that's wrong with us. And so tonight I simply want to look at two things. We want to look, first of all, at the crash, and then we want to look at the wreckage. Sorry, this may not be the feel-good Bible study of the summer, but hey, it's important for us to look at uh, to understand ourselves. Okay, First of all, we have to look at the crash. If you've ever read through Genesis chapter 3, you'll find that the devil uh, comes and tempts God's original uh, uh, people, Adam and Eve, uh, on the issue of pride. But the pride that he appeals to them has various stages. Um, uh, Pratt suggests that there are at least two stages that he brings to bear upon uh, Adam and Eve. The first stage is what he calls deception about ourselves. The crash begins by being deceived about yourself. Okay? Now look, you, you can only really understand exactly what Satan is up to in Genesis chapter 3 when you see the legitimate honor that God has bestowed upon His people. Okay? Mankind was not left as a have-not in the Garden of Eden. Okay? He was not deprived of anything that he needed. Far from it. First of all, the original man had a great opportunities in life, right? He could work in the king's garden. As a matter of fact, we, we know from ancient Near Eastern literature that to be a, a gardener in the king's garden was, a, was a, a, a place of great nobility, a place of great privilege to be able to tend the, the king's garden. It also was a place of work that was fairly pleasant work, <laughs> to be in a nice garden rather than out in a hot, dusty field as we ended up. It was a delightful job that man had. He also realized that he, man also had the privilege of being able to look at himself in a way of privilege. Um, in, in, at the end of uh, uh, in chapter um, end of chapter two, uh, God plants two trees in the garden. One is a tree of life, a tree of life. Where every time he eats of that tree, he affirms that he's God's subject and that he's in subjection to him uh, 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 as his creature. But he, but there's another tree that God gives called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was interesting, it's interesting to note that when God looks and says, you can't eat of that tree, he's basically treating Adam as if he can make his own decisions. You know, that was a privilege. He treated Adam not like a robot, <laughs> but treated Adam as if he had real life choices to make in life. Okay? And that's coming from a Calvinist, for heaven's sakes, right? Who would have thought it? 
Um, Again, to be able to eat the fruit from the master's garden was a greater privilege in ancient Near Eastern cultures. That's clearly what Moses is reflecting on as he's writing this story here. Finally, God gives them marriage. (laughs) The beautiful thing that man had in the garden was is that they look at each other and they have a reflection of themselves in each other. Uh, I'm not going to dwell totally on what we talked about this semester. This is all that we talked about. To look into the face of another human being is in some senses to see yourself, both your gifts and your flaws, unfortunately, right? Um, So, therefore, when Satan comes to attack man, he begins to try to tell man, to, to tell Adam and Eve, that what he's been given by God is not enough. That is the original temptation Notice what he says to him in verse um, uh, uh, 1. Is it 1? Yes. Satan comes up to Eve and says, Did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, we, me and the animals, we've just been kind of talking back here. And uh, I don't know, that seems like he's got you on a mighty short leash there, huh? <laughs> I mean, it's awfully constricted to say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden. Now, what did God actually say? Is that what he said? No. God said they could eat of any tree of the garden, right? But what Satan is trying to do is to plant the seed of the doubt and say, is what God has suggested is good for you, is it really good for you? I mean, are you really trying to believe that what he has provided for you is enough for you to really thrive as a human being? You know, I'm not trying to be nosy in your business here, Eve, but it kind of sounds like to me that God's trying to keep you out of the God club. He knows that when you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you're going to be like him, right? You're not going to die. In other words, he comes and the first thing he tries to do is to doubt God's goodness. So step one, kids. <laughs> the beginning of your spiritual demise whether it be ultimate or whether it be uh, temporary, starts with you looking at God and saying, eh, really, God? Really? Or, or, or perhaps even just sort of a, a general boredom with what He has or has not provided for you or what you think. In other words, does God have my best interests at heart? I've even thought that it's helpful to even look at temptation this way. Think about it. You're tempted with something that you know is against God's rules and against God's law. Do you recognize that when you have those two choices sitting in front of you, you're making a choice for that thing on the basis of what you believe will be best for you. Disobedience will make me happier. My life would be so much easier if I had the extra money that would come from me cheating on my time card from me billing a few extra hours that after all the boss says I'm more than welcome to bill out. Right? For me taking this one little business shortcut uh, that might cheat some other people out of it, I would be happier with that than I would be being honest in the way in which God commands me to do. You follow me? Every single choice that we make to sin is ultimately founded upon a suspicion of God's goodness to you and for you. Okay, um, man, we fall into this same trap all the time. Um, you know, how often do we, in, in, if we're not only doubt God's goodness, how often do we compare ourselves to other people? You know, we we can be deceived about ourselves even in comparing ourselves to other people and saying, "Yeah, but I mean, I don't, 
I'll give you an example. I won't say who it was, but we, I was sitting out um, with uh, 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 my daughters uh, a couple of days ago, and um, they had a bunch of their friends running around. The, the, the kids in the neighborhood kind of come over to our house and congregate, mostly because we have popsicles uh, in the freezer outside. So hence we get to be the most popular place in the, in the neighborhood. Uh, Ginger knows what she's doing. Um, but we were sitting there, and there's a bunch of little girls, like three or four little squeaky little girls, and it wasn't my daughter's, but there was some college girl went jogging past her. Now, these are kids anywhere between the age six and nine, maybe. And as the, the, the girl jogged by, one of the girls looked and goes, ah, she is so skinny. Seven years old, ladies, right? If it starts at seven years old, are we not foolish to think that we're not absolutely sick with it? My son Luke is now singing to himself. You'll get over it eventually. It just eventually comes background noise. You okay, buddy? Oh, I got you. Luke, I think Mommy's back in Sister's room back there, buddy. I think that's where she is. Go check back there and see if she's there, okay? You know, the fun thing about this is this is all be on the podcast. <laughs> so for those of you listening in on my son's conversations, I enjoy that. Um, okay, so step number one in the crash was, or stage number one was deception about ourselves. Stage number two was just open rebellion. See, that's where it begins. Defiance against God. Satan looks and goes, you will not surely die. First he plants the seed of doubt, and then he invites open rebellion after that. Um, You know, money carries for us a delusional feel, does it not? That that masks its own presence. Money has the ability to offer us as if uh, uh, um, uh, a way of being happy, a way of life being good. Um, Temptation to cheat with money. To steal money, to take money that's not ours, uh, is constantly there in front of us. Sex can be something that becomes incredibly consoling for the bored. We rebel because we believe that rebellion will ultimately make us to be the ones in charge of our lives. The Bible looks and says that is the way in which the crash initially happens. Um, So when it comes down to it, the, the, the destruction that Adam and Eve brought upon themselves happened when they set themselves up as the ultimate judge. Every decision that we make is made on the basis of whether or not God is in charge or on the basis of whether or not I'm in charge. It's the Bible's description of ourselves. Okay, so that's the crash, right? Uh, the crash comes to us in t- multiple stages. It starts with deception and ends in rebellion. But secondly, uh, the wreckage. <laughs> okay, so what's left after this crash, this great rebellion that people have? Well, uh, the first thing I want to look at is what did not happen. The second thing is what did happen. Um, what did not happen? Well, when mankind fell in Genesis chapter 3, he did not, because of that, cease to be human. We did not become animals upon our rebellion, as some would like to caricature the Christian message of saying. There are those who reject Christianity because they believe that by the knowledge of sin that we dehumanize. Does that make sense? We take something away from uh, uh, our humanity. That's not the case. We are not reduced to beasts because of our sin. Now, the, the Bible will claim that we are still created and still the visible images of God, even after the fall. This is very important to focus on here. 
that even after the fall, we're still considered to be people that are created in God's image. Now, what that means then is that we still possess the basic characteristics. All the things that we talked about in the last two weeks are still true, even in the face of sinful man. We're still rational. We still have the capacity to be moral. We have the capacity to be communicators, to use language. Um, uh, we still are immortal. Our souls will still live forever. All those faculties are still there, and they're not destroyed. They get marred, but they don't get obliterated. And there's a reason why I need to stress that. We'll come to it in just a second. Um, but the second thing that it means, it also means that we're still required to live by the commands that God gave us that we talked about last week. Remember? Multiplication and dominion. Those two things are still applicable to us even in the midst of our sin. So the first point I simply wanted to make in the midst of this wreckage of human sin is that it did not destroy our humanity. Mankind did not come uh, like the beasts in this process. Well, what did happen? Ah, this is the key. <laughs> A huge linchpin uh, to what we're trying to say. The number one thing that happened is, first of a couple things here, is that our character was scarred. In what ways? Number one, Adam and Eve were racked with guilt. Guilt entered into their relationships. And because guilt entered into their relationships, the relationship deteriorated. Listen to me, y'all. You cannot be friends with someone around whom you feel guilty. Have you noticed this? Some of you who've had friends who, have who, have, who are dating and have struggled sexually in those dating relationships have known at least a little bit about this. You introduce an element of guilt and feeling bad into a relationship, it always deteriorates the couple. And typically what they do in the face of that emptiness is race back into bed with one another to solve those problems, which in turn creates more guilt, which creates a downward spiral where eventually the two of them realize that they just don't like each other anymore. Why? Because I feel guilty around someone. That's kind of a heavy example, but it's as simple as something like this. If somebody walked through that door whom I've known that I've offended, I'll be honest with you, what I'll probably do is be like, oh, Caleb, stand in between me and so-and-so. They're here, and I just I can't deal with this tonight. To be honest with you, you know, oh, they, oh, they saw me. I don't want to be around or have a relationship with someone around whom I feel guilty. And so immediately Adam and Eve were driven apart by their guilt and apart from God as well. Secondly, the second thing that comes in is shame. They suddenly look at each other and realize that they're naked. Now look, the, the, the idea of nakedness is a theme through the Bible. It's constantly meant to talk about shame. Do I need to illustrate shame for this generation? Shame is that, that gnawing in the belly that I am not right. Shame, shame is that, that little voice that we try so hard to shut up that screams at us when we lay our head down on the pillow. If you're not those people who go to sleep as soon as you put your head down on the pillow. Right? I hate you. Um, but you know that shame is that feeling that you look and you realize that the, the way I've been living is not who I want to be. We're embarrassed. We're hurt. We are, we are, we regret uh, our lives in many ways. Our character was marred to the degree that we experience alienation. Because we experience alienation from God, we experience alienation from each other. And it devastates our uh, self, uh, our, our, our lives. Um, so it mars our character. But secondly, it mars our vocation. 
the things that we're supposed to do. As a matter of fact, most of verses 14 through 19 in Genesis 3 have to do with the curses that came upon Adam and Eve as men and women according to the promises. Remember, last week we talked about the fact that God gave Adam and Eve to multiply and have dominion. And it's very interesting that in the curses that come down upon women and men, they're in keeping with multiplication and dominion. Think about it. The woman is judged or is cursed, as it were, in terms of her ability to multiply and her experience therein. Now, I'm not just talking about the actual pain of childbirth and labor. Clearly, there's more than that. What the Bible is saying is there's going to be pain as you begin to relate to your children. I know for many of you are looking going, what can this possibly have to do with me? I don't have any children. Oh, but I think some of you know what it was like, ladies, to have grown up in homes where your mother is still living her life through you. Do I exaggerate? Um, you know what it's like to all this. Remember in high school, ladies, you just did this. Some of you are still doing it with your moms. She drives you nuts at this point, right? Why? Because oftentimes your moms are only slowly, and it's by the time you actually have a will in high school where you can make your own decisions, she's suddenly noticing that she doesn't have control over you anymore. And she was making you into an idol. And because you were her idol, the second that you begin to drift away from her, she clamped down hard. Right? You know what the Bible says? That's the curse. The curse is working because what that woman will tend to do is to look at her family relations and say, this is what makes me safe, keeping the family unit together. Right? Yeah, getting some looks from people. Some people know what I'm talking about. Family's going to be frustrating for you, ladies. That's frustrating for men, too. But it tends to be that's how that whole thing comes, right? Secondly, for the men, dominion taking is going to be frustrating. What does it say? Cursed is the ground because of you, God says to Adam. What it means, gentlemen, is, is that your work is going to be frustrating. When you go to work, it's going to work against you, right? Um, you know, bills will forever mount, gentlemen. Uh, gentlemen, you will never have enough stuff. There's always someone else who will have more than you or cooler than you or funner than you. Always, no matter how much you make. Right? There is no such thing as a man who has everything. Right? Um, fear and worry will constantly plague a man to decide about what his vocation has really afforded him. And then to be honest with you, there's a bitter end in all this. Now bear with me. <laughs> Walk with me for just a couple minutes here, y'all, while we finish up. Uh, some of you are going to be asking the question why you decided to come to Bible study at night. But go with me for just a second. The Bible then basically looks at you, gentlemen, and says, in the end, you're going to work yourself to death as well. Right? Because from dust you were formed and to dust you shall return. The looming inevitability of death hangs over every single person, whether they are religious or not. If they're not religious, they've simply not thought about it. The looming inevitability of death looms over everyone. Forgive me, but let's use an illustration. There's a lot of friends in this room, I hope. Great friends in this room. I hope lifelong friends in this room. But do you realize that there is one person in this room that will very likely see to the eventual death of every single other person in this room, no matter how close we are now and no matter how close we ever will be? 
Again, I know you're thinking, wow, I feel all good all under. <laughs> Thanks, Les. But I'm telling you, you've got to look that full in the face before you recognize how dreadful the disease of death actually is and what a bitter taste it leaves in the mouth. To be honest with you, I have one of the best marriages that I know of. I'm still crazy about my wife. We had our 12-year anniversary uh, um, a week ago Sunday. He mentioned again. Um, I'm going to say goodbye to Ginger one day. Period. Unless we're killed in some car accident at the same time or something like that. I don't know. If that happens, John come to our funeral and laugh at that, I guess. But don't laugh. It'd be terrible to laugh. But here's the deal. Bear with me. Bear with me. That's a very vivid moment to all of a sudden look and say, because essentially what you look at love and you want love to last forever. But here's the deal. Because death comes about, because of rebellion comes about, it looms over every human joy. And the people that walk around not thinking and not grappling with that reality are simply not thinking. You can inoculate, our culture has done its best to inoculate ourselves against death. Back in the old days, they used to bring the dead body to your house and the coroner or the um, undertaker came to your home to embalm the body. Literally sat on your kitchen table, right? Till the, till the undertaker could make it there. Now, it's all so antiseptic. Death is such at a distance for us. We don't even want to look, touch, think about the whole concept. Look, y'all, if we don't consider the disease, you won't understand the cure. I would push you this far. I would say the vast majority of whatever spiritual struggles that you're having right now, whatever they may be, are due in some measure to your either unwillingness, inability, or, one, or, or, or just lack of knowledge about the depth of our problem. It's an ugly scene. But <laughs> if the problem's that bad, the solution must be that much better, which is what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. I simply want to throw out the, the, this thought with you, uh, is that um, there's promise in this passage too. The promise is that there would be one who would come and crush the head of Satan, right? Uh, from 3.15 there. Uh, God looks and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman's uh, uh, progeny. And eventually there's going to come someone, a child of promise, who is going to come and crush the head of Satan and put an end to all the mischief that he caused. This is why Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, this is Jesus, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Morpheus sits in front of Neo in the movie Matrix and says, the Matrix, Neo, is blinding you from the truth. And Neo says, what truth? And Morpheus says, the truth that you are a slave the writer of Hebrews says that the fear of death will create slavery in you and bondage in you. And that is what has to be released when we grapple with ourselves as being in the image of God.